This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well, I'm back. I'm back and uh, we're going to we're going to finish Acts this morning, which is exciting. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. In fact, uh, the passage assigned for this morning was Acts chapter 21 to 28. Um, but that would have taken me four hours to preach. Uh, I struggle to stick to 40 minutes, even with a few verses. So um, I've spared you all, and we're just going to focus on the last couple of verses of Acts chapter 28. So if you've got a Bible, open up to chapter 28. Uh, just a quick plug for next week. Steve Chong is coming. For those of you who don't know Steve, he is a gifted evangelist, and people just seem to come to faith every time he preaches. So if you have got a friend or a family member that you would like to uh, hear the gospel. He's going to be speaking from Luke chapter 15 next week. So um, come to that. It's going to be great. We're here again next week. So, but let's go Acts chapter 28, starting at verse 20. Oh, where should we start? Verse 17. Verse 17. Paul in Rome. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of our brothers coming here have reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced, but others said, uh, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull. And with their ears they barely hear. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for what we've read in this book. And, and we pray this morning that as we see these closing words of the book of Acts, that you would stir in us a deep sense of optimism 
gospel optimism at what you want to continue to do through your church for your glory. We pray it now in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know if um, you've been watching any of the Rugby League World Cup, but I feel like I want to be adopted into the Latu family, if that's all right, because uh, that game, Tonga and Samoa, last night was incredible. So um, is there any room, Latus, for, for me to join your family? Because I want to be Tongan after yes, last night's game. That was incredible. To, you know, this morning we're finishing our series in Acts. I don't know if you're excited about that. We've been staring at this. Uh, this um, a movement begins... Artwork and logo for 29 weeks. 29 weeks, that's a long time, right? And so we're excited to, um, to finish. And so you might think, yes, finally, it's over. But I hate to tell you it's not. It's not over. And this isn't like a series of The Block where they say, right, there's one secret room that's hidden. We're not going back to Acts next week. What I mean by that is that the end of this book is really just the beginning of the story of the church. The end of the story of Acts doesn't end with Acts chapter 28. There's a 29th chapter that needs to be written. And that's not going to be written by Luke and his hand. It's going to be written by the church in obedience to Jesus' call and in the power of the Spirit as they continue to do what the apostles have been doing in the book of Acts. Speaking the good news of Jesus boldly, convincing people, planting churches and making disciples. And if you realize this, but Anchor is part of a global family of church planting churches that is called Acts 29. Acts 29. It's named after the 29th chapter of Acts that doesn't exist because we believe that our movement ought to be shaped by and compelled by and propelled by the same things that we see written in the book of Acts. That what was started by the apostles needs to be continued by the church. And so the 29th chapter of Acts is being written today. We're part of this family of close to 700 churches globally that are preaching the good news, making disciples, and seeking to plant churches. And so what we see in the final closing words of this book is not the conclusion, really, but the beginning. It reminds me a little bit of the Marvel movies. I'm not a huge Marvel fan, so uh, please forgive my simplicity, those Marvel uh, fanatics here. But this is my best attempt to try and understand what's happening in those movies. At the, like if you're a legit Marvel fan, you never leave before the credits have finished rolling because you know that there are always these little scenes that are given, right, after the, the post-credit scenes that happen. If you leave the cinema before the credits are done, you're not a true Marvel fan. And I think I actually saw Nicole Moran post that on her Insta story a few weeks ago. But um, there are these post-credit scenes that happen that give you little snippets and windows into what is happening next, into this grander narrative that stands behind just this one story, that this, this story that you've just seen, Thor or you know, the Avengers or whatever, whatever scene you saw, is actually part of a much grander story. And that is true for the book of Acts. That is true for this story as well. And so I'm afraid to say it doesn't, it doesn't end today. Today is really just the beginning. What I want to talk about this morning is gospel optimism. Gospel optimism. And there are lots of different forms of optimism, aren't there? There's the, you know, the Jared bachelor, Bachelorette optimism. You know, like he really thinks he's going to win. He believes he's going to win. He believes that Sophie truly loves him. And everyone else in Australia is like, come on, mate. You're so naive. It's just not going to happen. Right? There's that kind of optimism. Or there's the kind of optimism 
of the Kangaroos, the Australian Rugby League side, who really genuinely are optimistic about winning the Rugby World Cup because they're the best in the world, because of track record, because of how quality their players are, because of all those things, right? And so there's different types of optimism. There is naive optimism, and then there is optimism that is grounded and centered in reality, in perhaps the promises of God, in perhaps what we've seen God doing in history already that ought to shape us. It's very easy for us to be pessimistic, isn't it? As we think about declining church attendance, as we think about how many people in the inner west ticked on the census, no religion, upwards of 60%. As we think about the cultural moment that we find ourselves in and our views being squished further and further into the mind, it would be easy for us to become pessimistic about God's mission and His purpose and the part that we play in it. And so this morning, I want to give us three reasons for why we ought to be optimistic. Optimistic about what God wants to do. And the three reasons are this. The first reason is, as we examine the flow of the book of Acts, As we look at the structure of it, I think that makes us optimistic. The second is Paul's statement at the end there when he says, the Gentiles will listen. They will listen. That ought to make us optimistic. And thirdly, the final word of the book of Acts is the word unhindered. The good news goes out unhindered, and that ought to make us optimistic as well. So we're going to look at those three things. My prayer this morning is that God would stir in us a deep sense of optimism about the part that we have to play in our part of the big story that he is writing, this story of the church. And so the first is the flow of Acts. You know, sometimes you need to pay attention not just to what a book is saying, but the way it has been written. What not not just what a story is saying but the trajectory and the structure of a story. If you're a parent, you you probably get what this looks like because a lot of the children's storybooks that you read have a purpose behind them The structure of the book is actually winding down towards some character or animal falling asleep so that your child would fall asleep. When you think of the, uh, the book, The Green Sheep, right? Where is the green sheep? You ask the question over and over again. Here is the star sheep, and here is the moon sheep. Here is the red sheep, and here is the blue sheep. But where is the green sheep, right? And the very final page of The Green Sheep, it says, but where is the green sheep? Turn the page quietly and take a peep, and you turn the page, and there he is, fast asleep. Right? And, and so the, the structure of the book is kind of winding down so that your children... Or think of that wildly crazy acid trip kids show called In the Night Garden with Eagle Piggle. Right? And, and there's no dialogue, there's just noises. But what's the point of that story? They play all their games and then everyone goes to bed. But who's still awake? Eagle Piggle's still awake. Right? But it's not too late. Time for bed, Eagle Piggle. Right? So there's this trajectory. It's not just the dialogue, and there's no dialogue in that show, but there's not just the words on the page, but there's something about the structure of the book that tells us it's trying to communicate something. It's trying to do something to us as we read it. And that is true of Acts as well. We need to pay attention to the way that Luke writes the book of Acts. Not just what it says. So come back to me all the way back to the beginning. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This is what Jesus says to the disciples, to the apostles. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This verse is the key to understanding the book of Acts and to understanding Luke's intent and purpose in writing this book 
He said, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then further geographically out, the, the people of Samaria, the kind of half-caste mongrel, you know, cross-breeding Jews, and then to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles, all the other nations. And what we see happening in the book of Acts is that very geographic spread of the good news of the gospel happening. We've followed the journey, have we not? As Paul preached the gospel for the first time in Acts chapter 2, as he stood before the Sanhedrin and preached the gospel to the very men who convicted and killed Jesus. We've seen that trajectory as Philip took the good news to the Samaritans and then preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw that trajectory going even further out as Peter was called to preach the good news to the Gentiles, to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. And then we get to Acts chapter 13 and the Spirit calls and sends out Paul and Barnabas and they travel extensively and they preach extensively and they plant heaps of churches and you see the good news going out and out and out. It's literally, the book of Acts is a chronologic uh, uh, record record, for lack of a better word, of the expansion of the Word of God, the expansion of the good news of Jesus as it goes out and out and out and out from the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 28, 27, 28, we find that Paul almost gets to the ends of the earth, almost. He's in Rome, the very center of the Roman Empire, that great city of Rome itself. And we see this trajectory that what God promises, that you will be my witnesses, starts to happen and it unfolds. And Paul is there, speaking of the good news boldly and freely. But it's not quite the ends of the earth. He didn't quite get there. And so the book of Acts ends with this little bit of work still remaining to do. There's a, there's a little bit of God's promise and plan there that remains unfulfilled. And Luke ends the book with Paul speaking the gospel boldly and freely that there is still more. There is still more to do. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28. You know, when he commissions the disciples, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he adds that promise, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And that little line there, that tells us that this commission is not simply just for the 12 disciples that Jesus gave, but this promise of his presence, of his empowering presence, is going to be with God's people, his church, for the rest of the age until Jesus returns. And so both Matthew and Luke and their accounts on this sense of openness over what God is doing. There is this open-ended, uh, open end to the book of Acts. Stephen Addison, who's a, an Australian author, who's kind of written a bunch of books about movements and about um, particularly the movement of the early church, says this about Luke's ending of the book of Acts. He says, Luke left the story of the early Christian movement unfinished. Whatever happened to Paul, and we don't really know what happened to Paul. Chances are he was released after this little window of imprisonment here in Rome and then rearrested and later executed. But we don't really know. Whatever happened to Paul, the gospel would spread unhindered and bear fruit throughout the inhabited world. By leaving his account unfinished, Luke was reminding his generation and future generations that they inherit the mission that Jesus gave to his first disciples, their mission has become our mission. 
Acts 1.8, the good news going to the ends of the earth. That was Jesus' missionary manifesto, and that remains as true today as it was when it rolled off the lips of Jesus 40 days after he rose again from the dead. As we follow this flow of acts, we see that God's purposes have happened and that the good news is going to the ends of the earth and that we have a part to play in that because the story is not yet finished. God is still writing the story and he's calling the church into it and you and I have a part to play. The good news still needs to go to the ends of the earth. And the whole, not the whole, but one of the significant purposes of this book being written is that we would see that the church would begin to expect that what we have seen here in the book of Acts would continue to happen as the church continues to obediently and in the power of the Spirit preach the good news and plant churches. This mission must continue. Luke has structured the book for that purpose. And so for that reason, I think we ought to be optimistic that what we see happening in the pages of the book of Acts, we ought to see happen as we do the very same thing. Preach the good news, make disciples, multiply gospel communities, and plant churches. So we ought to be optimistic about that. The second reason we ought to be optimistic is Paul's statement there, the Gentiles will listen. The Gentiles will listen. bit of context to this. Paul is in, under house arrest here in Rome. He has been traveling. If you remember, we, we left Paul at the end of chapter 20, farewelling the Ephesian elders, knowing that he's going to Jerusalem and knowing that there is pain and opposition that awaits him there. And he gets to Jerusalem and the Jews try to kill him and they arrest him. And so he appeals to Caesar. And so he's sent to Rome and he's shipwrecked along the way. And he gets to Rome and he's under house arrest. And so he has a Roman guard chained to his arm or his leg or wherever they decided to chain Paul to him. And they rotated on a four-hour shift and they just guarded Paul. Talk about a captive audience, right? Because Paul was preaching all the time. And he has a Roman guard chained to his leg. And he's probably renting a third-story apartment in the city of Rome. It's a very expensive city. Shop fronts on the floor, expensive uh, apartments on the second story, and then cheaper ones on the third. And so Paul's probably up on the third story, renting an apartment, calling all who would hear to come and listen. And he calls the Roman Jewish leaders. There are about 11 synagogues in the city of Rome. And so he calls the Roman Jewish leaders to himself. And he begins to, from morning till evening, a whole day from the Scriptures, expounding the Scriptures, opening up the Old Testament, showing them how all of it points towards Jesus, trying to convince them. And some of them believe, and some of them don't believe. And they begin to disagree with each other in verse 24. And as they walk out, Paul makes this closing statement. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And he says this in verse 26. This is quoting from Isaiah. Go tell this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? For this people's heart has grown dull. And their ears, and with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, says Paul, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. There's a contrast here between two groups of people and their response to the gospel. 
the response of the Jews is that they've stopped listening. They've stopped seeing. They've stopped hearing. Their hearts are dull. That word there for dull literally means fat. Their hearts have become fat and heavy and weighed down. And for a culture that was familiar with the skill of butchery, as they would butcher an animal for sacrifice or butcher an animal for food, it was a very clear indication of an unhealthy animal when the, fat, when the heart was covered in fat. And what Paul is saying, what Isaiah is saying, is that this people, their hearts have become fat spiritually, weighed down, calloused, heavy, not soft to the Word of God. It's indicative of the Jewish people's responses to the good news. As Paul has traveled from chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 28, his pattern and plan was to go and speak the good news in the synagogues to the Jews first until they ceased to listen and then he would take the good news to the Gentiles as well. That was his theological conviction. If you remember from Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And yet here, as the Jewish leaders reject, or at least some of them reject, Paul's message, Paul says to them that God's salvation plan is now going to the Gentiles and they will listen. That's not to say God's given up on the nation of Israel. They have as much opportunity as any other as Paul sits in that upper room and welcomes all who come to hear. But the requirement is that they have a soft heart. And so Paul says, and he contrasts this hard-heartedness with the hunger of the Gentiles. They will hear. They will listen. And they have been in droves as we've followed the journey through the book of Acts. We've seen time and time again people who are far from God hear of the good news and be drawn in. They will listen. Not they might listen. Not there's great potential for them to listen. But they will listen. As the good news crosses over that ethnic cultural boundary, people will hear of this news and they will listen. Not, not just listen, but they will respond. It's the opposite of what the Jewish people were doing. They will listen. Paul expects, he expects that whoever is going to take on the task of preaching and proclaiming the good news after him, Timothy maybe, the Ephesian elders maybe, whoever is, has that task, he is expectant that the Gentiles will respond that they will hear of the good news, that their lives will be transformed, that they will come to worship Jesus. And that ought to make us optimistic about what God wants to continue to do today. That he wants to continue to do the very same thing that he's been doing since Acts chapter 2, drawing people to himself. That God has a plan and a purpose. And that purpose is to see the good news go to the ends of the earth that every nation, every tribe, every tongue would worship Jesus. Paul is expectant. He's optimistic. You know why? Because he trusts in God's plan and purpose. He's not sitting there thinking, this is going to go bad. I'm in prison. This all rests on me. If God doesn't have me, how else will the world hear about the good news? He's not thinking that. 
He's expectant that the Spirit is powerful, the Spirit empowers, that Jesus is still calling people to himself. They will listen. You know that warning there in Isaiah is still relevant. It's not just relevant for the the, the ethnic people of God, Israel. It's, It's relevant to all people. That if we would stop listening and stop saying and stop seeking to understand. That we put off doing business with God and think, you know what, I'll, I'll deal with that later. I'll sort this God stuff out when maybe just before I'm about to die. I enjoy life now and I'll do business with God later on. You know, the problem with that kind of attitude is that when you just keep putting God off, you end up getting good at it. You end up getting good at saying no. And you say no, and you say no, and you say no, and you say no, and it calluses your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to respond to this good news. And I believe that Jesus is still drawing people to himself and still calling people to worship him. And this warning is a promise too, that if you do hear, if you do see, if you do perceive, and you turn, God will heal. God will forgive. The idea of turning is what the Bible calls repentance. It looks like turning away from your sin. It looks like turning away from relying on yourself to justify yourself, to prove yourself righteous. It looks like turning away from that and turning back to God and turning to the person of Jesus and trusting that what Jesus has done on the cross in your place to To die for your sin, that is what justifies you. That is what makes you right before God. Turn away and turn back to God. And the promise is that He will heal. And I believe that there are even people here today who need to do that. Don't keep putting God off. Don't keep delaying. Today is the day to turn. And experience the healing grace of Jesus as he forgives your sins. And that is true for the 4.6 million people in this city who don't know Jesus. That if they would turn, they would experience the healing grace that God has on offer for them. That ought to make us optimistic, church. We ought to be optimistic because as we see God's plan and purpose played out, the very trajectory of Acts tells us that this story will continue. We ought to be optimistic because, just like Paul, we believe that the people who need to hear will listen and respond. And finally, the third reason we ought to be optimistic is the very last word of the book of Acts is the word unhindered, without hindrance. Have a look at verse 30 and 31. Paul lived there for two whole years and at his own expense welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Without hindrance. Unstopped. Unceasing. It's, it's, it's a legal term there that says he is not being forbid, he's not being forbidden to speak of the good news of Jesus. Unhindered. That nothing... Nothing can contain this message from going out. You think of what Paul said as he penned his last letter to Timothy just a few years after this. In 2 Timothy 2.9, he writes this and he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with these chains as a criminal, but, but what? 
word of God is not bound. That's what Paul is talking about here. You might chain the messenger, but you cannot contain the message of Jesus. You might lock up Paul, but this message is so hope-giving and so life-giving and sets so many people free and opens blind eyes that you cannot possibly hope to stop this good news going to the ends of the earth. It's God's plan. It's His purpose. And if you think of all of the obstacles that the early church encountered as they sought to make this good news known, you think of all of the things that came against the church. Let's quick recap, right? Acts chapter 4, the external opposition and threats from the Jewish Sanhedrin. Stop talking about this name or we'll kill you. What does Paul say? We can't help it. We can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Or think about Acts chapter 5, the hypocritical sin of Ananias and Sapphira as they lied to the Spirit and lied to the church leaders. The potential of that sin diluting holiness in the church. Or you think about chapter 6, the fighting and division division between God's people over provision for the widows. Or again in chapter 6, the potential for the apostles to be drawn away from their core responsibility of preaching the word and prayer. We think about chapter 7, the martyrdom of Stephen and Paul's murderous threats that he breathed out against the church. That has the potential of, of stopping the spread of the gospel. The persecution that broke out that scattered God's people across the world. We think about Acts chapter 12 where James is killed and Peter is thrown in prison. Or you think of Acts chapter 14 where Paul is stoned almost to death in the city of Lystra. Or you think about the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15 where the church could have strayed into heresy and let go of the truth of the gospel. You think of Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement and go their separate ways. Or you think of chapter 16 where Paul is thrown in prison. Or chapter 19 where there is this riot in the city of Ephesus because of an economic downturn. Or you think of chapter 21 where Paul is seized by the Jews that try and kill him. Or 23 where there's a plot to kill him. Or 27 where there's a storm. They're on this boat. There's this giant storm that comes. It threatens to sink the boat. They're all about to die. Or chapter 27 again as this boat is shipwrecked and the soldiers want to kill all the all the prisoners including Paul or you think about the snake that bites him in chapter 27 this venomous snake that was supposed to kill him but didn't or you think of the might and power of the Roman Empire in chapter 28 literally the enemy threw everything at God's plan he threw everything to try and stop this external internal nothing Nothing can hinder this message going to the good news, going to the the good news, going to the ends of the earth. It continued to grow. It continued to flourish. It continued to transform lives and cities as people move from death to life. The entire thrust of the book of Acts, one of Luke's intended purposes is for you to see that this is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. You, you cannot contain this message. It will go out. It will change lives. That church ought to make us optimistic. It ought. What makes us think that that has changed today? Oh, that the church would recover a deep confidence and optimism in the God, that we would repent of our pessimism. That we would believe along with Paul that people will listen. That God's plans and purposes are sure and certain. Because a church that is confident 
and optimistic about the transforming power of the gospel and obedient to the call of Jesus and steps out in the power of the Spirit is a powerful thing. We've seen it time and time and time again in the book of Acts. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you optimistic, church? Are you expectant? You know, that sense of expectancy is one of our team values. That we believe that God actually wants to use us. Whatever we're doing, we believe God wants to use us. And so we ask the question, what am I expecting God to do today? What am I expecting God to do on this team? What am I expecting God to do when I preach this good news message? What am I expecting God to do today when I go to work? Are we expectant? Gospel optimism is not the placebo effect. It's not substance-less power of positive thinking. These are truths that are anchored and grounded in the promises of God. That He promises these things. That Jesus promises, I will build my church. This is not the placebo effect. This does not rest on our gifts or on our strategies. This rests on the power and promises of God. Just think about it for a second. Did not God move you from death to life? Didn't he awaken you? And if he's done that in your life, can't he do that in another person's life? Can't he do that in your neighbor's life? That is a miracle. God is in the business of doing miracles, of transforming people, of moving them from death to life. Are you expectant, church? We cannot be pessimists. We cannot. If we are, we fail to believe the promises of God. But neither do we let the narrative of our culture and the statistics of church attendance make us pessimistic. See, we don't look, we don't look inwards and focus on our gifts and abilities. We don't look outwards and freak out as we look at the culture. We look up and believe and cling to the promises of God. And let that stir a sense of expectation in us. Remember a number of years ago applying for a job as a photocopy sales person, and um, I was I was a bit desperate. I'd never done any sales before, and I'd been looking for a job for about three months. So I went for this interview, and um, at the end of the interview, the the interviewer said to me, "Do you have any questions for me?" And I said, "Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your product? Where's it made?" What types of materials do you use to make the product? Where does it sit in the pecking order of the quality of other photocopy machines that exist on the market? And after asking my questions, he said to me, you can't sell a product you don't believe in, do you? And I thought to myself, yeah, actually, that's true. I I need to be confident. If I'm going to tell people to buy this photocopier, I need to be confident that it's going to work, it's going to meet their needs, it's the best product on the market. And the same is true for us. If we don't believe that the good news can radically transform people, if we're pessimistic about the culture's response to this, we'll never speak. But if we believe, if we worship the God that we worship, the God who is in the business of transforming lives, the God who has been doing this for 2,000 years since Acts chapter 2, as the good news is proclaimed, drawing people to himself, then we must be confident. We must be optimistic. I want to suggest that there is nothing more important 
for us as a church, and I think even for Christians in Sydney, to recapture a confidence in the transforming power of the gospel. There is nothing more important than that. But, and this is a free little extra bonus for you, if we've got time, we don't have time. The harvest is white. It is ripe. Remember that image that Jesus gives us? He says, look out and see the harvest. It's ready. All we need is workers to go and reap the harvest. And so he says, pray that God would send them out. You know, we could make excuses. We could just get on with doing what Jesus has promised to do and what God has called us to. Because there is a sequel. There is a sequel to Acts chapter 28. And the sequel is us. The sequel is the church. And God is using the church to continue to write his story. And until Jesus comes back, he is going to continue to do that. The purposes of God remain. His plan has not changed. The world still needs to hear. People are still stuck in sin. The Spirit is still empowering people. The good news is still good, church. Jesus is still building his church. God is still inviting people into his purposes. And we have a part to play. And that will only happen when we have a deep sense of optimism about the part that we play, the message that we preach, and the God that we worship. And so I'm going to pray that God would stir a sense of gospel optimism in us, church, and send us out. And this movement that has begun will continue in and through us. So let me pray. God, I want to thank you for this journey that we've been on over the last 29 weeks as we have seen your hand at work. And God, we want to worship you this morning as the God of power and might and strength, the God who longs to call the lost home, the God who has a plan. God, we thank you that this story is not over. We thank you that you have people in this city who are yours, that you want to call to yourself and that you would use us. Forgive us, Father, for the times where we are pessimistic. Maybe we've spent too much time focusing on us and our strategies and our gifts. Maybe we've spent too much time looking out, freaking out at the culture around us. God, would you lift our eyes to see what you have been doing for the last 2,000 years? Would you remind us of what you did in us? Give us the faith to believe, God that you will do this again. Help us to be obedient. We long to see this city transformed. And so please stir in us, Father, a deep sense of optimism, grounded in your promises, grounded in your character. We pray it in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.